Welcome to the Space Between podcast. I am William. And I'm Katie. And in this podcast, we talk about the complexities of life, faith in the 21st century, and everything in between. Often, that space between is where a lot of us find ourselves. We hope to provide a place where people can be honest and we can engage with one another with compassion wherever we may end up on our journey. Hello and welcome to the Space Between podcast. Today we have Stacey who is the author of Love Makes Room with us. Thanks for coming on today, Stacey. Oh, thanks for having me. Great. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself for those who haven't heard of you, haven't come across your book before and what you do? Sure. Um, I'm actually, my first love and passion and vocation are um, as a musician. I'm a songwriter, a singer. Um, I've been recording and writing original music since I was a teenager, and that has spilled over into um, also within the context of faith-based spaces. I've been a worship leader in mostly evangelical church spaces and conferences and events and things like that. So I've been a musician, a working musician, most of my life. And um, it's only been in recent years that I've I've begun to do some writing. Uh, my first book was a book called Flourish about um, really cultivating a creative life. And then the this most recent book, um, is a more personal, much more personal story about a very, um, you know, um, critical, crucial shift in my, in my faith. Yeah, I can see the piano behind you there. So um, yep. is there any other <laughs> instruments that you play or is it mainly piano and singing? Uh, it's guitar as well. I, the guitar is packed in the closet, so you can't see it right now. Um, but uh, we're a pretty musical family, actually. I met my husband, who's a bass player, um, over a musical context, and then both of I have two children, and they both play music, and so we're we, yeah, music is definitely a part of our lives for sure. Yeah, good bass players are always hard to find because, especially <laughs> within church settings, because what you often find is that either electric or acoustic guitar players are just kind of roped into going on bass because yes. not many people choose it as their first instrument. But you can really tell the difference when you get a good bass player <laughs> in a band. Yeah, <laughs> agree. So, do you want to tell us a little bit then about your experiences of faith and church growing up and then into being a parent as well? Sure. Um, I wasn't raised actually with uh, as a with a personal sense of faith. I not until I was a teenager, but growing up, um, my parents went to church like maybe a lot of people, which is on the main holidays. You know, we I grew up Lutheran here in um, the Midwest, and it, not here, I'm actually in California now, but I grew up in the Midwest part of the country, and it, it was a very conservative upbringing. Um, we, like I said, we went to church a couple of times, two, three times a year, and then right around my early teenage years, I was introduced to a much more, um, I would say, personal evangelical approach to understanding God and was introduced really to, to Jesus in the, in the way of um, an invitation to have a personal inv- you know, relationship with Jesus. And that's the first time I'd ever heard of that. It was in my teenage years. And I, 
I was very, very drawn to it, very, very drawn to the person of Jesus. And, and so um, became a Christian at a young age. And then all through my high school, college years, I went to private Christian schools and was just very, very the good girl, you know, and, and also very devout in my own personal faith. Um, took it real seriously and um, dated, you know, only Christian boys and um, met my husband when he was... Um, we met at church as teenagers and got married barely out of high school um, and continued really to attend a pretty evangelical churches. Um, Assembly of God is one of the de- denominations that we stayed in for most of our married life we have been in. Um, we raised both of our children um, to be, uh, you know, baptized in, within the evangelical church. Um, my husband and I have both served as worship leaders, as youth leaders, and we've always been in some kind of leadership capacity within evangelical churches. And then, like I said, with my giftings being in the the avenue of um, songwriting and singing, worship leading, that's kind of where I've always been in positions of leadership, and and I've been in front of thousands of churches with um, playing music. Really, that's been my um, kind of the way that I've appro- the way that I've been in those doors and on those stages has been through music. But definitely um, brought our kids up to believe the same ways that we believed and um, attend the same kinds of churches. You know, Sunday morning and then Wednesday night Bible study. We were, we have been definitely the church family, you know, pretty much your atypical or your typical evangelical family. Yeah. So definitely not an Easter Sunday Christian. <laughs> no, we, we, we were all, we were all in. <laughs> all in. Yeah. Um, I would love for you then to share kind of a bit of the story about the events that eventually led to you writing this news book. Uh, take as long as you need with this. I know that there's a, a good bit to cover, so feel free to take your time and share that with us. Sure. Um, so I would say, you know, at a, at a, my career was going along at a really good stride. I was recording albums of music. I was speaking at women's conferences. I was getting, um, you know, I was on television and doing national kinds of speaking and singing. And then um, our 16-year-old daughter one day on the way to school um, just started kind of crying uncontrollably and was having a difficult time. This was, you know, kind of a, had been leading up to this moment was some depression, some um, uncharacteristic behavior on her part. She'd been staying in her room a lot. She, her grades had dropped. She'd been um, hanging out with different kids that I noticed. She'd been skipping school, um, you know, behavior that for her wasn't really the norm. And But I was just, I kind of chalked it up to just normal teenage behavior. She was acting out or she was just being a typical teenager. But this one morning on the way to school, she was very upset and inconsolably crying. And I remember asking her just over and over, what is, what is the matter? And, and then she, when she wouldn't tell me, I kind of had to start probing in that way that, you know, a mom sometimes does. I was asking her, did someone, you know, did someone hurt you? Is there someone that um, did something to you at school? Is there a teacher you're in trouble with? Is there a friend that's hurt you? All of these things. And she said, well, at one point she finally said, well, if I tell you what's wrong, I have to tell you everything. And 
I remember my heart just dropped because that's not the thing you want to hear is, is the, you know, the mother of a teenage girl driving her, we're getting ready to drop her off at school. What, what was everything? What did that entail? So I pulled the car over and said, you know, let's just, let's forget about school for now, but why don't you just tell me what's wrong? And, um, over the course of the next hour or so, again, she, she was not really forthcoming with the information, but I had to kind of keep following down these little pathways of questioning until, I mean, I got to the biggest question of, that I thought of all. I, I, I said, are you pregnant? And she said, no. And at that point I was like, well, that's, I've reached my ceiling. That's the highest, worst question, you know, scariest thing my mom's brain could imagine. But in fact, um, she finally told me, well, my heart is broken for starters. And then that led down a road of questioning that ended in me saying, you know, are you, are you telling me this is over a girl? And are you telling me that, that you're gay? And she nodded. And I can remember the moment she nodded and it just, you know, I had no clue. There were no signs at least that I could read, um, that she, that she had been carrying this secret. And um, she was 16 at the time. And once it was out in the open in the car, I, I, you know, my first instinct as a mother was to let her know that I loved her and that it, everything was going to be all right and that nothing had changed between us. But of course, there was this whole other side of me that just became enveloped in this fog of kind of um, really terror uh, because of the very, very specific and narrow understanding that I had been brought up with around homosexuality. Uh, there just was not room for, uh, you know, me to have a, a, a gay daughter. I, that didn't fit with my understanding of the Bible. It didn't fit into anywhere in with my own, with my career, with our family life. It didn't fit into my church world. It didn't fit anywhere. And so, uh, you know, at the end of that conversation, I remember just thinking, well, something's got to give it. I can't fit both of these things. I can't fit this unconditional love for my daughter and this very narrow belief about homosexuality. I can't fit them in my heart. Something has to give. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. You, it definitely seems as if you were thrown in at the, the deep end there. Right. Um, just, uh, and I suppose your first response uh, has been to, love which for many people is not the case when they've been brought up in a conservative evangelical or a conservative religious environment in general the first response of many parents is not to show that unconditional love but to respond with anger um or threats so um i commend you on that but how how did did that process and follow on afterwards of reconciling what your daughter just told you and then the beliefs that you held at that point in time? What was that process like? I can say that all of the things that you mentioned that many other parents um, have done or felt, I, I absolutely felt and I absolutely went through. Um, there, it's, there were stages to it. I, I think it, my initial stage was thinking it was a phase that it would pass, that this was something that like every other stage this teenager had been through, um, this was something she had, a notion she had gotten in her head from some friends. 
And this was going to just pass over like her goth phase or her punk stage or her skater phase, or you know. And um, so there was this sort of magical thinking, right, that maybe this was something that would simply go away in a matter of weeks or months. And yet it didn't. And so then I think from that place of wishful thinking, then comes, then the reality sets in. And there's a great deal of fear around this topic for parents because, um, you know, especially if you've been brought up to believe this, this very, very, um, this very, very strict, you know, what we call biblical understanding of homosexuality is that this person is now choosing a life of sin and separation from God. And for a Christian parent, that is, that is their deepest fear for their child. Um, and so there was this working through of, of kind of the, you know, I had to at some point just begin to, to dismantle that idea because I, I had this idea in a very loving God creator um, who created my child. So how could this loving God creator who had created her this way then reject her for being simply who she was? Because the the thing that I noticed in the very first weeks of you know living with my child now out is that this was not a choice on her part. She had not somehow just woke up one day and decided that she was gay. I mean, we, we had lots of conversations and I asked her lots of awkward <laughs> questions about how did you know? And wh what about this? And what about that? And I started putting pieces together from her childhood. And, and we began having these conversations in which I saw for, for, you know, for sure that she had not simply just made a choice about this. So that, you know, I began looking, even thinking about the kinds of scriptures that, um, reassured me uh, that she was wonderfully and fearfully made, that she had been knit together in, in my womb as is, and that there was nothing broken or wrong that needed fixing in her. And so those two notions, um, God being perfect and loving creator, could not create someone who was broken and needed fixing somehow in, the, in, their, in their natural way that they responded and desired uh, someone of the same sex. And so you know, um, some of those fears, those questions persisted over the months, but some of them began to melt as I, two things, as I was in her presence and realized that she's just a normal kid, you know, I, I guess, I, I guess I never thought that LGBTQ kids could come up through a family like mine, that they could come out into a family like mine. It was just, um, that these were just, you know, these were kids that somehow had come from um, some different kind of family system than mine. And in fact, it's, that's absolutely not the case. It's, you know, and I saw it firsthand. I, I watched my daughter as she developed a crush on someone or fell in love. And I realized it looked the same as the way I fell in love when I was a teenager. And so watching her live her life as well as me, digging down deep into some of my own biases and stereotypes and belief systems and really examining them much more closely in light of this very precious dear, you know, relationship. Um, gradually over time, I think is, is what helped me move toward a much more understanding um, place. 
Yeah, you you said kind of earlier on that some of the initial fear was that fear of that if your daughter was coming out, that, that meant that she was somehow disconnected from God. And when when you think about the concept of like sin, there's only a few sins that I think of and then go, that means that someone's disconnected from God or what I thought when I was within evangelicalism, I go, murder, disconnected from God, something else, disconnected from God, homosexuality, being lesbian, disconnected from God. I would love to know why you think there's that intensity, that level of intensity with this sin over other sins as the evangelical church would define it and and why that's the thought that comes first of all. Sure. What a great question. I appreciate that question too, because, um, well, I mean, first there's the clobber verses, you know, it's funny as you were saying murder and whichever other you mentioned. I mean, if you look at those vice lists among which homosexuality sits, that was one of the first kind of red flags for me was how how, okay, I've got this daughter who still sleeps with a stuffed animal who wouldn't hurt a spider, who gets her feelings hurt if you look at her wrong. How is she listed among the thieves and the murderers and the and the godless idolater? How is she listed in that list? Like I would ask that question just from a rational point of view. Go, this does not make sense. And so, but there it is, right? Like so before before I had the daughter who had come out, I, I, I guess I just looked at that list and thought and just accepted it as biblical truth. Well, this is what God says, and I'm holding air quotes up, this is what God says about these people, about this particular act or sin. And so there's this, this idea of just taking the Bible literally. I think that's part of it. Um, and but I think the part that doesn't get talked about, which is why I'm, I'm glad you asked the question, is that I think evangelical Christians, like, like everyone else, are subject to uh, their own biases and stereotypes and preconceived ideas about people. And when you're raised, particularly in my generation, when you're raised with the images and the media portrayal around around gay people, it, it was very one-sided. It was very caricatured. It was very hush-hush, um, taboo, um, all of those things, which then fed into my own understanding of biblical inerrancy at the time. And so, you know, between what culture told me and what the Bible told me, I thought, I had compassion for homosexual people, but I thought they were doomed. I thought they were on a on an absolute, um, you know, trajectory only to hell. That was the only way I could I could I could understand those verses and what I had grown up seeing around me. That's the type of thinking that evangelicalism seems to produce, especially when you consider that there are about six 
was so-called clubber versus against homosexuality. And there's not really any mention of uh, lesbian acts right. of any kind. It's mainly acts of men with men. Um, so there's six verses of specifically gay acts. Um, but then there's hundreds of verses condemning wealth or clobber mm. verses that condemn right. wealth. And yet that's not treated with any anywhere near the same level of severity where you go, if you're a really wealthy person, you're disconnected yeah. from God in the same way that you that an evangelical or someone in a conservative religious environment would go, you're a homosexual, you're disconnected from God. There's just not that same level there. It seems like a very inconsistent way to approach scripture. I agree. I agree. I, I'm a language person. I was an English major in college. Um, one of the first places I started with my own research around this when I was digging in hard after Abby, my daughter's name, after she came out, um, you know, so much hinged on that word homosexual for me. It, it, it hinged around. And even though there were only those handful of verses in which it was mentioned, you know, they were doozies, right? And they were ones that, 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 like you say, evangelicals, at least the upbringing I had, we hung everything on those verses about the way we thought about it. And so I remember digging in and, you know, lo and behold, you know, it turns out there are all kinds of discrepancies and translation nuances and differing opinions around, um, First of all, even how those words that the Apostle Paul originally uses gets trans get translated, and and then on top of that, you know, if you if you do any kind of research around when the word homosexual was even introduced to biblical translations, it wasn't until the mid um, the mid nineteen hundreds, around nineteen forty five or so or forty six, that that you know the translators began replacing the word homosexual for all kinds of different words that that did not translate homosexual, you know, and, um, and with that one word homosexual, they kind of lumped in all of that cultural bias, all of that, um, you know, you had this, this one word that then encompassed not only the human being, but also the act. Right. And, and so then you had this, you had this problematic word that's just this kind of this catch all word that was not even, remotely, you know, similar to what the original contextual historical language tried, was trying to convey. Um, and, and that was incredibly eye-opening for me. And I, I would encourage any and all Christians or, you know, anyone interested in biblical translation at all to dig deep into that whole study because it's, it's fascinating. And like you said, um, it became increasingly clear to me that, that, you know, the, the whole of the Bible is concerned about such different, heavier, more weighty topics than this one that, that evangelical Christians have just, you know, really made an entire, uh, yeah, huge boulder out of. Yeah, and I can imagine as you were exploring those new ideas, those new thoughts that it could have felt quite isolating, especially while still being in the um, evangelical church, while still being part of leadership um, and trying to process that. Did you process that mainly on your own or was your husband involved with this process as well? And then what did the conversations then look like as you began to talk with people from your church about it? Well, 
you're right in saying it's a very isolating process. Um, when Abby first came out, one of the first thoughts I had was, I don't, ha I don't have anyone to call with this information. Um, my church friends, none of them that I knew had walked through this. None of them I knew had had a gay or or bisexual or trans child. Um, I I didn't. I literally did not know a single person who could relate or had walked through this. And so that was that initial thought was incredibly isolating and lonely and scary because then as you, as I did begin to branch out, I told a handful of people that I trusted and, you know, those became my core people that I, I could process with. And as I began, you know, trying to say things, um, whether I said a small thing in public or whether I said something in a conversation, um, it's like you're testing the waters all the time to see who's safe, you know, because you can get to a certain ex you can get to a certain point with other Christians in this conversation, and then in my case, anyway, I, I was look I looked for the landmines, you know, the places where it would just suddenly blow up. Where to me, the person would say something like, "Well, well, you know." All we can do is love them. All, all you can do is love her and pray for her. And in that moment, I knew that what they meant was she's broken and she needs fixing, and you need to make you need to pray that she you know gets fixed. And as my understanding of Abby as a whole, um, you know, perfect human being began to to grow. Um, those conversations with other Christians would reach an impasse because I understood that they did not see her as a whole perfectly fine person. They saw her as a broken person who needed fixing. And so it, it, you know, that was a very difficult process. So I went, a lot of my new community, if you will, I discovered online, you know, um, I discovered authors, um, I discovered a guy, you know, who wrote the book Unclobber, Colby Martin. I found him. I found Matthew Vines, who wrote God and the Gay Christian. I found Pete Enns. I found Sarah Bessie. I found Rachel Held Evans. I found, I just started digging to find other people who were asking the same questions as I was. And they weren't the people in my immediate life, most mostly. They weren't really my actual friends' friends. My, my They were people who were just out in the world that I was able, thank God, to connect with on the internet, you know. Um, but your the real life relationships and conversations were were awkward and difficult, but they were also really beautiful because um, every time I put my foot in the water and said something online or said something publicly, you know, for every person who disagreed with me or said I was off track, I'd get a private message from someone who said, Oh, Stacy, thank you for saying this. Our daughter came out and we haven't known what to do. Or, you know, um, thank you for saying this. My sister is gay and, and I haven't known how to have this conversation. And so what I discovered is there's, well, there's this kind of secret life under, you know, you didn't talk about it in the pews. You didn't talk about it at Bible study, but you certainly were talking about it behind closed doors and in private messages. And that's where mm -hmm. I got all kinds of, started getting all kinds of texts and DMs and emails from people as I began to get more vocal about my process. Yeah. And so as you went through that process and as you began to speak out a bit more on it, how did your relationship with the church 
change and then where is it at today and you can mention a wee bit of what we were kind of talking about before uh, we started recording the podcast and then how has your faith changed in that process too? That's been a, a difficult one to to navigate because, you know, on the one hand, I I can recognize that the people that I have gone to church with all my life, for the most part, are very kind, good-hearted people who mean well and would not intentionally hurt someone. Um, on the other hand, um, you do feel this gulf between you and another human being when, for example, you know, standing next to someone at church, if we're praying or we're singing a song, I, I'll have these sudden flashes of realization that this person standing next to me singing the same song, praising the same God, would not be able to pray for or want for my child the same happiness or flourishing life that they would want for their own child. And that becomes a deal breaker at some point. You realize I can't really fully open up, be vulnerable, worship with this person um, if they don't, if they can't get to that same place of loving my child unconditionally the way they love their child, you know? And, and I really did begin to understand that, that the whole idea around unconditional love is that you do not put conditions on the people you love. And that included the... LGBTQ community, there, there cannot be conditions on our love or else it's really, really not unconditional love. And so my relationship to church has become much more complicated. Um, there were years where I, I continued to speak and sing and do the things I was hired to do, of course, and, and that I wanted to do because my own music still resonated very deeply with me and, and was about things I cared about. And so, um, but at the same time, I was getting phone calls from churches saying, well, we're going to have to uninvite you from this event because we have, you know, since discovered that your views about your daughter, the things you've said about your daughter, they don't align with how our church understands homosexuality. And therefore you're, we don't, we, you can't stand on our stages and come and sing. So I, I was receiving those kinds of calls and emails regularly. Um, and so I, I knew that it was only a matter of time, I think before, you know, my vocation of actually singing for evangelical churches was going to come to a a stop. And, and so, yeah, it's a lot, it's complicated. <laughs> um, I also, like I said, at the, at the end of the day, you know, my message has been that we need to make room for LGBTQ people in, in our hearts, in our churches, in our lives, in our homes. And at the same time, I have to turn that message around on myself and say, I have to make room for people who are still on their way to that journey and I have to make room. I have to sit at that table. Love demands of me the same thing that love demands of them, you know? Yeah. So what would you say to anyone who maybe is in that more conservative religious environment that are maybe listening to this just now? They're just beginning to explore these ideas, either their child has came out to them or they're just questioning what they've been taught about the LGBTQ plus community. Um, what would you say to those people just now if you were sitting having a conversation with them? I would say don't be afraid 
of your own doubts. Don't be afraid of your own questions. Listen to your body. You know, it, part of my part of my growth came as a result of just listening to my own mother's intuition about my daughter. She's I knew every mother knows their child fundamentally is good, right? But we are taught somehow that they're not good through this process of, you know, kind of unlearning that through through what we're taught in terms of, of some of these biblical um, concepts. And so it was a returning to my own body, to my own instincts, to my own intuition to say, you know, this child is good. Uh, your neighbor, your granddaughter, your niece, your sister, whoever it is that's going through that, um, you know, coming out, um, just keep in mind that they are still who they are. They're, they're exactly who they were before you knew they were gay or before you knew they were trans or before you knew they were bi or whatever. And that they are in fact, um, created in the image of God and press into your questions. Don't be afraid of them. And also have patience for the process. It takes a long time to untangle yourself from these roots that you've developed and that's okay. It takes time, but it's worth it because in the end, I think love for me anyway, if you keep love at the center of your theology, you're not going to, you're not going to be led astray. You're going to continue moving toward Jesus, not away from him. If you keep love at the center. Yeah, it's really good. Um, many, as I mentioned earlier, many relationships have sadly been ruined or torn apart um, because of the church's teachings on LGBTQ people. So do you have hope that this situation will change? And if it is going to change, then how is that going to happen? I do have hope. Um, I, I read a statistic uh, recently that said something like, I'm going to get it wrong, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it, it was a really something close to 50%, maybe 30% of millennials identify somewhere else on the spectrum of sexuality and sexual orientation than just, uh, you know, heterosexual. And um, also conversations like this that I've been having in spaces like yours give me so much hope that um, we are more willing to have this conversation than we were 10 years ago. You know, um, I'm grateful that I can release a book like this and continue to even have Christian friends who follow me on social media and who want to engage in conversations around it. And, and certainly there are some who have completely written me off and think I'm insane and think I've gone off the deep end, but there are, you know, there's, um, I forget who it was, talked about this gray middle, you know, you have, you sort of have your black and white, you have your polar opposites, but then you have this middle. And these are the people who are quietly watching movements, right? And they're, they're quietly making their own decisions within their own hearts and their own homes. And I think, and I'm hopeful that people are beginning to move toward a much more inclusive, tolerant place around the LGBTQ topic. Yeah, I think like a big part of it is just that the discussions often aren't happening in the more conservative spaces. I know yeah. from the churches that I used to attend that were not affirming in terms of the teaching that a lot of the people that went actually are 
Um, a lot yes. of the people that attended that were just in the congregation, maybe not serving, maybe not part of leadership, but who were just in attendance actually were. And eventually, either through the treatment that one of their friends or someone else had received in the church, um, had decided to move on and, and leave the church. So it definitely feels like a, a silent majority almost in, in a lot yeah. of cases of people just trying to figure it out of, I'm trusting this pastor figure, this leader for spiritual guidance. And at the same time, I'm conflicted because some of my best friends or my brother or my sister has came out as gay or lesbian or bi or has transitioned. And um, it becomes very difficult when the has been humanized uh, and it was yeah. i think there was a similar statistic um here in the uk when the catholic church recently mm-hmm. kind of made clear right. that nope we're not going to do gay marriage um that actually the majority close to 70 percent of catholics in the uk support gay marriage and you go there has to be a point where um the opinions of the majority kind of overtake that in leadership either that or they break off and start something new from there right and i think that probably it's going to and i i'm a strong believer that stories will save us you know human stories will save us and the more i think people of my generation especially people in leadership positions who have held church ministry positions come out of the closet as allies um the more it becomes this indisputable, well, wait a second, this is something we need to talk about, not just in these silent places, but at the level that conversations are happening publicly within church leadership. Yeah, I was having this conversation with, uh, do you know Alison Tash Montgomery? I don't. No, um, she does a lot of coaching around spirituality and sexuality. Um, Specifically, like recently, she's been doing a lot of work on allyship and for people who are maybe Christian or religious, how they can be really good allies for the LGBTQ community. But we were speaking a bit about my experience of how I came to be affirming. And it was through stories. It was specifically, I remember there was a podcast episode by the liturgists where literally the whole episode was just stories of people. And I was driving to work and just was in floods of tears as as there was this like conviction almost from the Holy Spirit and a real repentance on my part um, Mm -hmm. and a seeking for reconciliation with my gay and lesbian friends or transgender friends. Um, So yeah, hearing those stories really causes you to question um, the validity of the the beliefs because I think it comes back to that whole thing of Uh, what fruit is it really bearing those beliefs what are they producing and in a lot of cases it's just producing heartbreak and pain um, and the breaking down of families which for an institution which is supposed to support families um, it seems to go against it because by rejecting children or um, anyone really who identifies as LGBTQ you're forcing them almost into subdued lifestyle where either they rather than settling knowing that they have the affirmation of their family with a long-term partner they end up having multiple relationships or sleeping around and that's Mm -hmm. a generalization obviously that's not all the time but it can happen Mm -hmm. i know in in our case you know our daughter just stopped going to church there was no 
it was like almost as soon as she came out, she could then, it's almost like that was her own, giving herself permission then to separate herself from, from what we had been, you know, our, our worship um, style and, and practices. And that was heartbreaking to me that, that, um, you know, she, she found more acceptance and love and inclusivity, obviously within, within her new community than she did from people who had known her since she was a, a baby in her, in our church, you know? Um, and that's, that has to change. <laughs> We've got to change that. We, 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 the one institution, as you said, that is, that is supposed to be the safe refuge for families, for, for people to, to come together and feel cared for, um, that there's this entire group of people that feel the exact opposite when they walk through a church door is that's our bad. That's on us. Um, and it, I absolutely think we need to reform that and change that. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. finally, um, what would you say to those LGBTQ people whose families haven't responded the way that you have and instead, um, there's been an immense sense of loss either through being disconnected from the family or just having to conceal such a significant part of their life and the pain that that entails. I mean, I think that's one of the beautiful things about pride, you know, this month is, is that we're celebrating uh, LGBTQ folks are celebrating their chosen families. They're, they're celebrating this, this, sense of solidarity and coming together and saying, this is us, this is who we are, and we are beautiful, and we celebrate each other. Because so many of them have felt that loss, and because so many of them, I think, have had to pretend to be something other than who they are, um, you know, uh, uh, celebrations and events and things around pride become so sacred to LGBTQ folks. So I, I think I would say that, you know, it, first of all, it's so brave of you to come out. It's so brave of you to be absolutely, fully, authentically who you are, especially if you know that that fl flies in the face of what your family or, um, you know, your your hometown folks think about you. I think it's incredibly brave, and I, I also think that that there's beauty and joy in in choosing your family and. Um, I know that there are organizations here in the United States like Free Mom Hugs where, you know, you've got these moms that go to pride parades and just go around hugging people because they know, you know, we yeah. know that there have been so many that, that missed out on that. And so um, it's difficult, it's hard, but it is worth it to be fully who you are created to be. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your perspective on all of that. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And um, if other people have enjoyed this too and they want to find you and your work and, and get the book, where would be the best place for them to find you? Great. I, I have a website, just my name, stacyfrenis.com. And my book is out. It's called Love Makes Room and Other Things I Learned When My Daughter Came Out. It's wherever books are sold, um, Amazon and everywhere else. And um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Stacey Frenis. So that would be great to connect that way. Great. Perfect. I'll put a link to all of that in the show notes as well once the podcast is released. But Stacey, thank you again for coming on today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. It's, it's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you.